Well, my name is Orville Vernon Burton. I'm the Judge Matthew Perry, Distinguished Professor of History at Clemson University. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now, let's get started with this episode. And I spent 34 years as a professor of history, the university distinguished teacher scholar in African-American studies and sociology at the University of Illinois, Uh, retired there and have been teaching at Clemson since 2010. Uh, Critical race theory is in the news today uh, and uh, quite a bit, and it's often quite mischaracterized. Uh, critical race theory really began in the 1970s, and it was, in fact, uh, by legal scholars looking at how the law uh, interacted with race. Uh, It's associated particularly with a number of people, but it's really the founding fathers often looked at as Derrick Bell, who was the first African-American who taught at Harvard University Law School. Kimberly Crenshaw and Pat Williams are three others who have looked at it. And basically they're saying that civil rights was not working, that despite Brown v. Board, and then later the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that you still had inequalities in America. The idea was that racism was pervasive, that it's not just a personal, that there are bigots and racists that are causing these, but structurally, racism, they argued, was embedded in American institutions, that despite America's commitment from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of Equality, that the institutions themselves, in fact, uh, fostered inequality over time. Uh, and in fact, some of the criticism had been that that took away the moral responsibility of bigots and others who had racist ideas. But it says that racism functions in the society. And in fact, there are at least three different uh, uh, ways that these legal scholars uh, put this together that it's a theoretical framework. There's not just one thing that is critical racism. Derrick Bell, who is sort of seen as the father, uh, sees that particularly with Brown v. Board and supposedly the ending of segregation, and that's different, uh, that we've never really had integration in American society. What we've had is a law, Brown v. Board, that replaced Plessy v. Ferguson, which is said that separate but equal was okay, but what we've never had is integration, just that that uh, separate uh, is not legal anymore. So with, with uh, Bale, what he sees as that there'd been very little progress and that what is really happening is that uh, particularly institutions, uh, 
And for him in particular, those who were in power, which is generally whites, are benefiting. And the only time that progress is made for black people was when it, it fit in with the power institutions. It was in their benefit. And then you had, uh, on top of that, Kimberly Crenshaw, who argued about intersectionality that people can have multiple identities. Therefore, if you are a woman, racism in effect or institutions power affect white women different than black women. So what you have is more of an approach to examine society, not one thing, this critical race theory. It doesn't mean at all, as people are interpreted on certain political spectrum, that white people are intrinsically racist. What it says is that institutions benefit whites at the expense of other groups of people. The emphasis is on group dynamics. Uh, and the critics of that, mainly from the left, have actually said that it overlooks the critical role of individual behavior by saying that it's all placed into uh, an institutional framework. But clearly institutions have fallen very short of American ideals. Uh, that what has happened is institutions have, some argue, perpetuated racial ideals over time. Uh, and this goes into the actual um, framework of this intersectionality that you can belong to different groups at different times. So what do institutions versus people are doing? The persistent racial sort of uh, uh, injustice that comes out of American institutions where it's going to give some specific examples. Mortgage lending is one of those. A person who is loaning money may not be a racist at all, doesn't even realize what is happening. But the rules that are set up by banks. So the individual who is, in fact, um, loaning money may not be racist at all. But the bank's rules, the, the accumulation over the years of property are our, our wealth by whites has made it harder or where African-Americans might live makes it harder compared to where whites to get the same sort of mortgage thing. So that's just one example. And we can do a lot more over time because I've talked about a lot of these in the book I co-authored with Armand Just Durfner, the great civil rights lawyer, Justice Deferred Race in the Supreme Court how we had a huge affirmative action program, federally and state supported for whites that did not include black people that helped accumulate uh, wealth over the years for whites and disadvantaged black people, as opposed to just thinking, well, slavery ended in 1863, 1865, that the institutions themselves continued to perpetuate disadvantages for minority. Um, so structures, practices, habits, 
all perpetuate this disparity for African-Americans. A good example, of course, is a criminal justice system. Uh, I wrote an essay years ago called The Black Squint of the Law, and that was a quote from a young graduate student who himself was very bigoted and racist. He was at Vanderbilt at the time. He went to the South Carolina Constitutional Convention of 1895 that becomes the Constitution of 1896, and he talked about the black squint of the law. That is, the white legislators wrote into the Constitution certain laws that would be prosecuted uh, that they believed that African-Americans might commit, like stealing a pig or trying to leave um, uh, a contract. I mean, the extreme one was they believed that black men might beat their wives. So you would then be convicted of that as a felony, and you would not be able to vote anymore after that conviction. Whereas if you killed your wife, which is what, in fact, white men often did, you would not lose your vote. That's the most extreme example of that. But basically, (laughs) what you have is incarceration rates today. You know, you have harsher policies. Uh, One that's most famous, of course, is the drug wars where you could be doing cocaine, uh, uh, which is uh, something that whites do, plus crack cocaine, which blacks do, and you have harsher penalties, marijuana, things like that, decent job opportunities, homelessness, poverty, all those kind of things. Instead of dealing with those, you deal with the criminal justice system with with different um, things. And when we have a crime wave, one of the things that happens, of course, is that we uh, have more police enforcement, put more police there, not to deal with things like job training programs. So you have these inequalities of wealth that have been perpetuated over time. You can go back and easily talk about enslavement and people coming out of of having been enslaved and not given anything and that the literally at at the mercy of white landowners, but sharecropping in the South. But if you look in the North, you have predatory lending rates, as we talked about over time. And one of the things that we talked about in particular in Justice Deferred Race and the Supreme Court was uh, the issues of literally we have had 12 generations since we first had laws. First, it should be said, of course, that there is no such thing as race, whether you take it as someone like myself, faith-based, that God created all people in her or his image, or if you look at what geneticists say, scientists say, there's no such thing as race, but the laws. The laws in America define race as a category, and then those laws over the years have been used to have differences between particularly black and white people in the United States. Uh, Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I I get the point that you say there, especially in the in the concluding part of it, that uh, race actually does it exist as it were, no? At least not in the sense that a lot of people uh, look at it uh, like we are actually naturally categorized into different groups. Yeah, that is this pure race and the inferior race and all the whole uh, uh, gibberish that people say, you no? Know? Um. If that is the if that is the situation, does it worry uh, people that administer the society, or is it just in their favor? Because now we understand that it's actually a social construct, like like we often say. Is it at, to their advantage that they have this uh, confusion in the society, or is it because they have not been able to solve the problem of that we are referring to here? This discrimination, this deliberate abuse of the right of other people and of course we then use look for ways to justify it is racism or things like that what, what do you have to say about that well i think it's changed over time but i think that is a key question that you have identified and it's complex and i think maybe one way to look at it is uh, is how critical race theory was developed by the great black scholar legal uh law professor at Harvard, Derrick Bell. It was 1972, and Bell realized that despite Brown v. Board 1954 that overruled Plessy v. Ferguson 1896, it said separate but equal was not there. Integration had not worked. You hadn't had it. And historically, many of the black institutions themselves had been weakened. You had the brain drain from colleges at all black schools, of course, uh, which had top professors, including himself, were hired away by a place like Harvard or Princeton or Yale and others. So when they came integrated, uh, if you look at what had happened um, in society when in the South, which really doesn't start desegregating the schools, uh, until the 1970s, many years after, your high school coaches, for example, the the white coach would be the coach and the African-American coach would be the assistant coach. You'd have the superintendent would be white when they integrated the schools and then the black would Africa, who had been superintendent would be the assistant superintendent. So perpetuating those things. So Bell was a controversial theorist. Uh, he, as I said, the first tenured African-American professor at Harvard. He's often viewed as a primary founder of critical race theory. Um, and his views on integration, the possibility of racial progress and racial reconciliation were costly negative. So as late as 1992, Bell wrote, and I want to quote what he's saying here so I get it right. Black people will never gain full equality in this country. Even those Herculean efforts we hail as successful will produce no more than temporary peaks of progress, short-lived victories that slide into irrelevance as racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance. Now, he's perhaps best remembered for arguing, in fact, that the U.S. Supreme Court case in 1951 should have modified Plessy v. Ferguson's precedent 
rather than overturning it because he felt Brown merely weakened black institutions without providing for black educational quality. This is actually a question of injustice uh, rather than uh, race, no? I remember that I did add the question before uh, sometime when we, when we made the first time. If a system is outrightly unjust to a certain section of the society, I, I find it uh, purely uh, disheartening, no? Because I look at it as an injustice rather than a race argument. So I, I just wanted to chip in that, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, and I was surprised when we wrote this book, Justice Deferred Race in the Supreme Court, to see how we had set up a system in which African Americans were not only excluded, of course, they didn't have the vote um, uh, because the Supreme Court had ruled that as long as you could use race-neutral language, that African Americans could be disfranchised by picking out, as we talked about in the criminal justice system, uh, things like an understanding clause or a literacy clause and things like this to keep people from voting, the poll tax, all those sorts of things. But it's even the more recent times, if you think about it, Social Security, uh, which came about with the New Deal with Franklin Roosevelt, the Southern white Congress were so powerful that they had excluded from the rules of Social Security, that was a fallback for people, farm workers and domestics, which were the jobs that African Americans were most employed in. So while whites were getting Social Security, while farm farmers were getting support, it did not go to their workers, all those things they were excluded from during the Depression. But then World War II was an extraordinary game changer. When you think about uh, the rights that were given to veterans, and these are black veterans who had fought as well, uh, so that veterans could now uh, get a, a mortgage to buy a home. So whites were able to buy homes, which appreciated in value, that then allowed them to use that as collateral for their children to go to college, etc. They could also go to college and be paid for by the veterans after World War II. So why didn't that benefit black soldiers and veterans as well? Well, because you had redlining practices. You had covenants which said that black people cannot buy in areas which are those which appreciated, but only in other areas. So that was just another step of affirmative action for whites that keeps blacks disadvantaged. And of course, in the American South, the former Confederacy, black soldiers could not go to the University of South Carolina or Clemson University here in uh, South Carolina or the University of Alabama or the University of Tennessee or the University of Texas or North Carolina or any of those places. So they had to go to historically black colleges, which were great schools that had so much and did so much good for the black community, but they didn't have the resources, let alone the networks of the other places. So you have this continual perpetuation of ways in which whites gathered and accumulated wealth that excluded African-Americans in the United States. So in this sense, 
Uh, if we were to look at it now uh, with just a bit of reasoning, we don't need to think so much to understand this. It means that the problem of discrimination in the United States, I mean, the problem of injustice that is perpetrated against a certain section of the society, and in this case we are looking at the African-American, is a crime that is being committed by the state. The institution that are that are not that they are just encouraging it, but they are designing it and they are executing it. Can you say anything to that effort? No, I think that's exactly right, but I think it's larger than that. And let me put it this way. Uh, Henry Adams, in one of the more celebrated books in America called The Education of Henry Adams, of the Adams family, of the presidents, the second president, uh, and and uh, his son, another president, said that the American mind stood alone in history for the ignorance of the past. And I think that is a real problem, that people do not know this history. And that's part of what critical race theory approach to society is trying to help people to understand. In fact, it was the founding of that family, the, the second president, John Adams, had the answer. And he says, facts are stubborn things, and whatever our wishes, our inclination, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. So now, critical race theory, as it's being called, as people sort of started attacking it, says that you cannot even teach about race in American society, not just critical race theory, but race that might make people feel uncomfortable, one group of people or the others. It's a real crisis, not only in education, but democracy in America today. Critical race theory, as opposed to, is expanded to other disciplines, but as I said, approach to society, but it is being, has led to People saying they feel uncomfortable and you cannot make children in school feel uncomfortable. So you cannot teach about race in schools in several states have passed laws like Tennessee and South Carolina and others. So we have a real crisis because the truth is a one thing that can set you free and make a difference. And if you cannot teach the truth, what are you going to do? And I think that's our only answer. We have to stand up to this. Uh, okay. If we cannot teach race, uh, which of course uh, we have said, uh, I think I'm saying it more than once now, that is only a, a social construct, can we at least talk about the injustice of the system? Because now the system we can see is set up to punish certain people. Okay, when you were explaining before, you did make mention of the fact that those who were designing the critical race theory did uh, uh, give as one of their excuses that uh, the system seemed to be favoring uh, white people at the expense of other members of the society. What do you say to that? I think, I think historically, having just written this book, Justice Deferred Race in the Supreme Court is well documented. And I think that's our answer. We have to show the documents. Let people look at the evidence. Uh, and that doesn't tell people how to think but look at the evidence. In fact, uh, one of the critics from the other side of critical race theory is that it lets people off too easy who do have racist attitudes as opposed to saying it's just a structural problem 
in American society, in American um, history over time. And it's all gotten confused with a lot of things, such as the 1619 Project, which centered slavery, for instance, in American history, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And even though that's not critical race theory, it's the making people feel uncomfortable about their history. And then as opposed to dealing with it, we want to sweep it, sweep it under the rug. And we all know that if you don't deal with these issues, you're going to trip over them later. We never had a truth and reconciliation sort of movement as other countries have, such as South Africa, after uh, apartheid. And we've never really dealt with that in the United States. And so I think there is a true confusion as to what has happened. And critical race theory, as far as I know, is never taught in K through 12 schools. It might be in certain disciplines, uh, in college and in graduate school, but seldom even there. What you're trying to do is just lay out the history and the documents. And you would think that people would want to know that, in fact, one group of people were excluded from New Deal programs. Uh, and that matters, that one group of people were excluded from being able to use their veterans' benefits uh, as another group of people. So I think that is critical for us to lay out this history through the documentation that people can understand why we are where we are. You can't predict the future from history, but you have to understand that you got where you are from our history, and that should help guide you to move forward if you really believe in those principles of the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, that all people are equal under the law. But that all people are equal under the law, it looked to me like a joke, at least in the United States. Do people really believe that all people are equal? I mean, the people that, let's talk about the state. The state have all the apparatus of control. They have the police, they have the army, they have the constitution, they are the ones that are interpreting it. Do the politicians who are interpreting this law, okay, let me not just say they are interpreting the law. Does the politician who have all this instrument under the control actually believe that everybody in the United States is created equal, or are they just lying to the people? No, I, I think that people do believe that. Uh, one of the things that has happened is they think, well, slavery was long ago, and it ended, and uh, people fool themselves. There's been studies done by psychologists, for instance, that most white people believe that the, there's a wealth disparity between blacks and whites, but as opposed to it being like uh, just African-Americans have accumulated, the, the truth is about 10% of what whites have accumulated over the centuries and years. They think it's about 90%. They, they don't know. And they feel that an African-American has the same opportunity at being hired as a job as do white people in the community. That is, if they're qualified. What they don't understand is that's not true, that the evidence shows otherwise. And that's why it's so important that we teach the truth, that we put the evidence there so that people understand. But I think we have sort of 
created this myth from our history that all the problems were solved. They were solved with Brown v. Board. They were solved with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964-1965. And so now everything is equal. And um, I think most people will say that things are a lot better. People in general are not lynched when they try to vote, although there's still some problems. There's no doubt about it. And so they see it very differently than the reality of how we got there and how we got into the disparities getting worse and worse over time. Uh, Whereas African-Americans may now their wage be closer to whites or better, their accumulated wealth is not. And that is the more important statistic to understand uh, for where people are in society wealth-wise. All right. Now, looking at the critical theory, as it were, uh, which specific problem uh, was it designed to resolve? And how was it supposed to resolve this problem, looking at the reality today in the United States? Yeah. Well, it, it probably never, ever was designed to solve a problem critical race theory. It was a way to understand societies. Others have applied it to say, I mean, you have, as I said, so many different approaches to it. Others have applied it to say, well, you need to make corrections in society, but itself is just a social a social theory. If I could take a little time, I can talk a little bit about Derek Bell, who was the founder of it and is often misunderstood. See, I think we need to take seriously this critique. We may not agree with it. But we need to take it seriously to understand. And it doesn't have to be critical race theory, just looking at historical evidence. Um, And I think there are sometimes you would say that the problem have been people who actually have malice in their heart and are racist toward black people, not just the structure of society's called problem. And I like to remind people that Derek Bale actually loved Howard Thurman, who was the great mystic uh, black theologian, one of the greats of the uh, 20th century. And uh, Bell was deeply influenced by his teachings. In fact, in 1978, after watching a recent full-length interview with Howard Thurman that was broadcast on public uh, broadcasting, PBS, Derek Bell wrote him telling that he wanted uh, to be among the multitudes, I'm quoting here, who deluge your office with favorable comments. Our whole family enjoyed it immensely. He thought that one interview was not enough, and Bell wrote PBS suggesting they sponsor a whole series of shows that would give a long-term forum to present uh, Howard Thurman's philosophy. In 1982, Bell was invited to the wedding of one of his former students. He couldn't attend, but he sent a present, a copy of Howard Thurman autobiography with head and heart. And I'll quote here what he wrote to his African-American student. As wedding gifts go, we hope you will consider this a combination toaster oven, silver platter, crystal goblet for your soul. Howard Thurman was a great man whose greatness grew out of life experiences that with his abiding faith in God, 
He translated into sermons and writing that offered insight and provided uplift to all who came into contact with him. Bell then suggested the essence of critical race theory and the spirituals were quite similar. Uh, both could, and I quote, communicate understanding and reinsurance to needy souls trapped in a hostile world. Bell often quoted Thurman on the spirituals and black religion. For Bell, as for Thurman, the spirituals were the first and most enduring example of how persons of African descent in American captivity during and after slavery ended legally were able, and I quote, to make something out of nothing, carving out a humanity for themselves with absolutely nothing to help save imagination, will, and an unbelievable strength and courage. Bell, Derek Bell, the founder of Critical Race Theory, appreciated Howard Thurman's emphasis on black spiritual survival, a self-generated connection to God that cannot be taken from them, did not depend on legal or citizenship status. Now, I was told that when Derek Bell was dying, he asked that Howard Thurman, the Negro spiritual speaks of life and death, be read to him. In his final passage, it states that enslaved people discovered that God, and I quote, was not nor could he be exhausted by any single experience or any series of experiences. To know him was to live a life worthy of the loftiest meaning of life. Men in all ages and climes, slave or free, trained or untutored, who have sensed the same values are their fellow pilgrims who journey together with them. What I'm trying to say is that what Howard, what Derek Bell was saying that it was not the fault of the individual African-American who had not risen to be president like Barack Obama did, but those structural problems in society that kept people as a group of African-Americans to advance in society. So I think it's been quite misunderstood and it's used in different ways in different disciplines now. But the essence of it is that there are structural inequalities built into the institutions in America. And that even though the people who might be running those institutions are in charge of making it are not racist at all, that the way society's institutions have developed over time, that they discriminate against and perpetuate the inequalities that have been in American society uh, since slavery itself. I take it from you that most of the people that are running the system, the machine of the United States, are not racist, no? Uh, let's take it like that. But well, they, they, they may or may not be. Mm -hmm. uh, what what uh, the critical race theorists are saying, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so actually my question is, uh, as, let's assume that none of them is even racist, but at least they are good people and they want a fair society. They see that the system is not functioning in the interest of everybody because let's pretend that everybody is created equal according to the Constitution of the United States. Let's pretend that they are working to uphold that, which is the Constitution of the country. Can they do anything about it? Can they well, influence their own behavior so that it becomes illegal to be discriminatory in this, in this country? 
that it become illegal for somebody to take advantage of other people because they belong to a certain group of the society. That is what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, and the law should do that now. But as we have seen, it really matters in terms of political parties. One of the problems is that critical race theory, race itself, is now being used by a political party or a large group of people in that political party as what we would call a racial dog whistle, which was explained by people who developed it long ago, the idea that after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you can no longer use racist epithet, calling people the N-word, things like that, saying that they were ignorant or not ready to be citizenship. So you use other words that would trigger the idea, the same racist ideas, but not using those words. So you saw it in particular with the development of the Southern strategy under, under Richard Nixon, uh, when he particularly laid out the law and order campaign, but you saw it used uh, explicitly with, in fact, uh, Ronald Reagan, who would not use the N-word, but would say things like welfare queens or strapling young buck to sort of conjure up this idea of dangerous African-American. And it was used by both political parties sometimes. And it's come down today that just like busing, law and order, or these other terms, that critical race theory is being used as a way to trigger in people's mind race and racial divisions that help many people to mobilize white voters for one political party to think we are the party of white people and we are opposing the, those who want to uh, do positive things for African-Americans. But it really does matter. The United States is not a parliamentarian form of government. And it matters very much who's elected president because that president gets to a point, all the federal judges for life and the Supreme Court who rules on these laws. The laws are very clear that you cannot discriminate. The 13th Amendment, one of the things we discovered in the research in our book on the 13th Amendment is that it was interpreted to end, in fact, the badges of slavery, which are the kind of things we're talking about that critical race theory lays out the inequalities in society, that when you go into a restaurant, the person taking your order will be a white person, or at the cash register, the person in the kitchen flipping the burgers could be black or perhaps Latinx or others. Those are badges of slavery that the 13th Amendment was supposed to end. So I think that it's how those laws are applied and who applies them that really matters. So the only weapon I think that people really still have is the vote and the importance of the vote. That vote makes a difference, and it makes a difference in people's lives. Uh, I have a curiosity. Now, we're talking about critical race theory. Uh, we are, uh, before, you did also say that... Um, 
the race as a concept, as, be, as the people want us to believe, really doesn't exist in that, in that, in that context. No, it doesn't exist, no? It's only a social construct. And now, we are talking of critical race theory. Is that not almost uh, contradicting as it were? Because now we want people to be, we want to preach this idea to people. Let me clarify that part. Well, it's like with the election of Barack Obama. Everybody said, well, now, uh, literally, uh, we don't have to worry about race because we live in a post-racist society. And Stephen Colbert back then, when he was on the Colbert show and not doing the late show on, uh, on television, he said, well, now that a black person has been elected president, we can say that slavery never existed which is just not true, as we've seen following. And after Barack Obama, it, it particularly stirred a lot of, once again, uh, actions that could be interpreted as racist. Now, that's different saying racism exists, but there's no such thing as race. So, as I pointed out before, we created a distinction between whites and blacks, and other people of color within the law that made distinctions that could be used in society, both for good and bad. All right. Another thing I was just thinking is, um, okay, it's both between uh, law and policing in the United States. Um, maybe it's just my thinking, you know, is it possible that uh, in the neighborhood that are predominantly African American, there are a lot of white police that are policing that neighborhood, and uh, maybe neighborhood that are uh, predominantly white, the, the the people that are policing it are still white? I'm trying to understand the ratio of the people or the police that are policing certain neighborhood, and if there is anything, if you have to do with uh, race in terms of how they do it because why I'm asking the, quest the question is that you see some of this incident of police brutality against African American they are usually white police brutalizing people in African American neighborhood so my thinking was that if these people African American were the one policing themselves I mean if the police that are sent there to police the environment were African American uh Maybe the result can be different. I'm just thinking. What do you think on that? I think you're absolutely right. In several places, we've tried to do that, of course, uh, increase hiring of African-Americans and to try to have African-Americans uh, part of the police force uh, in African-American neighborhoods. It makes a huge difference, I think. Well, studies have shown that. And not only that, but to be part of the community, to understand the community, not be just an outsider so that people will trust them. I mean, for so long, the um, uh, white police officers have been something to be feared for good reason, as we saw with George Floyd or we've seen uh, in, in Atlanta uh, and Georgia recently. Uh, so to have someone who can be part of that community, can talk with people there. Uh, 
we don't want to go back to the history of the crime bill and those things which were so much crime is crime committed in black communities and as opposed to understanding why that is with wealth and poverty and homelessness uh people want to speak of it as a criminal disposition when any scholar will show you that the reasons that are there have to do with those structural things that we've talked about that critical race theory has pointed to that lead people who don't have job and job opportunities to be more likely to be creating crimes to survive. So this is often misunderstood and uh, clearly criminalizing at harsher penalties, petty crimes versus these kind of major crimes where people can swindle people of millions of dollars uh, as some charlatan or corporate swindle campaign and able to get off with hardly just a slap on the wrist or go into a, a pampered special little uh, uh, prison where they have uh, access to so much. This sort of disparities in this is a good example of what critical race theory would teach us about the institutions themselves that have perpetuated the inequalities. <laughs> ah, talking of the inequality, uh, why was he talking about the policing, race, uh, as it were, and the discrimination of the system? I think the prison system is something somebody should be uh, thinking about also. Because uh, studies have shown that the American prisons are disproportionately uh, favoring African-Americans to be as it, welcome to the prison. You know? uh, meaning the, the percentage of the people in prison in the United States, African-Americans are disproportionately more in number um, compared to the white people. Now, let's say uh, these people are doing this because their neighborhood, they don't have resources to be able to do, they don't have the resources to be able to live. That is why they are into crime. And the United States have a lot of money to be able to invest in this area if they really want to solve the problem. Is the problem building more prisons so that we can put more people there or actually developing this area so that the people can be working and contributing to the society? I'm trying to understand why is prison a solution in this case? Well, I think this is a good place that the theory of uh, critical race theory could help people understand. Of course, people make money off of prisons. Prisons are institutions that uh, can make money, and the privatization of these has been a, a, a real problem. But I think, again, it comes down to politics. One political party wants to do things like job training programs in a community to help people. The other one would rather build prisons. So the only answer to that is to vote for the one that you think is going to solve the problem. For me and a lot of other people, that's the job opportunities, uh, training, education, uh, building infrastructure within the community that allows people to have a better life and better opportunities. All right. Uh, one question for you. Have you ever met any person that is a racist? What did they really 
think about uh, black people? Well, when I was a young man, and I had met, and I grew up in a little town called 96 South Carolina, just a, a college student. I was interested in, in race relations and, you know, did some voter registration, things like that. I was so impressed by the young people who came to South Carolina and Georgia to register voters, part of the civil rights movement, that I had the naive idea that all people from the North were non-racist. So I was so excited when I was uh, chosen to go to Columbia University, my school, Furman University, I guess nominated me. I didn't even know I had been, didn't even know what Columbia University was. They had a Harvard, Yale, Columbia summer uh, program. So I did all of those. And I was uh, very excited because I was going to go north. And in fact, uh, found out how people were so wonderful and bring back so that we would not be racist and believe in these racist ideas in the South. They put us in Bernard and, and Barnhart College uh, for that summer, and the guard there was a bachelor Irish uh, guard, so there had been a policeman, and I had never met as racist a person in my life as that person. He really was a sort of neo, uh, what I would almost think of as Nazi, but his whole idea that summer was to save me from my ideas of egalitarianism. And I realized it has nothing to do with North or race or South, that race and racism can be anywhere. And that's part of what critical race theorists pointed out, that actual uh, people who might consider themselves anti-racist can be part of institutions that perpetuate racism itself. If one were to ask, what really do, uh, what is the actual benefit in terms of concrete benefit that they can have for being racist? I don't, I do not see any benefit if you believe in the basis of the Constitution or all people are the or at least the basis of the Declaration of Independence, which I believe the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment put that Declaration of Independence, which was our mission statement, into our Constitution, our rule book. I see no benefit at all for racist beliefs, uh, unless you think that if somebody else has any opportunity that takes away from me, I just think that's a philosophy that's wrong, that all ships can rise together in terms of our decorate. It is what made America so great. It's what has, I think, inspired other countries to emulate uh, the United States is our belief in equality of all people. But it's our misunderstanding of how that has been applied over the years that has misled us. And there, I think, is so important to investigate our history to see what we can do, in fact, to end these inequalities or at least to make them better. And I think there are programs that do that, uh, but we have been in a period 
except for briefly of sort of retrenchment away from those ideas over the years that we made progress with the civil rights movement. And part of it was the false belief that the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights, solved the problems of inequality. It made great progress. But as I said, we had had 12 generations of teaching white supremacy and white privilege and the law reinforcing those. That's why I love the first illustration in our book, Justice Deferred Race in the Supreme Court. It's the great attorney and later Supreme Court justice, Thurgood Marshall, getting off the train, uh, the silver meteor in Charleston, South Carolina, to argue the case that becomes Brown v. Board. It's just Briggs v. Elliott. And he'd almost just been lynched in Florida arguing a case. And he says, sometimes I get tired of saving the white man's soul. And I like that quote so much because it says that segregation and inequality and white privilege is not just bad for African Americans, but think about what it does to white children and white people to believe that they are somehow superior, that they have certain privileges they should have that others don't. It's a very dangerous way of thinking. And I fear that some of that has reemerged, particularly since 2016, in the way people are thinking in American society. Right. Now, if uh, uh, someone were to ask you, uh, what are the key points, uh, key points argument in favor of critical race theory, what would you say? Because of the laws that we have, which should be race neutral, it's been very hard, I think, for people to understand how inequalities have been perpetuated, that with the end of slavery so long ago in 1865, say, or earlier some other places, are the end of Jim Crow, which was really 64 and 65 of the Civil Rights Movement. Why groups of people, in this case primarily African Americans, have not succeeded as well in society as most whites have. And what critical race theory says is you have to look beyond racism of individuals to look at how institutions have perpetuated uh, these inequalities. For instance, the American Medical Association, you know, did not recognize or would not allow uh, African Americans to train at certain hospitals. Things like that that are part of the continuation or black doctors to be part of the American Medical Association. So the continuation of discriminatory practices that we've laid out before, such redlining covenants that keep African Americans from living or being able to purchase homes where they could um, uh, accumulate in wealth that then would allow them, as so many white people did under the veteran plan, to buy homes in places where they would, their property values went up and allowed them then to send their children to school, 
have the equity in their homes to do so many other things, invest in businesses that have perpetuated these inequalities over society that are not just related to George Wallace saying, you know, that he's not going to allow segregation to end or to allow black people to come to the University of Alabama, that it's not an individual problem. It's a structural problem of the institutions in American society. And I think we have to take those criticisms seriously, uh, particularly when we realize that we have never really had an integrated society. People still live in segregated areas. And that is because of these institutional rules that were built into lending, mortgage lending, where people could buy homes and things. So I think it's important to understand that, but also to continue to understand that individuals make choices and certain political leaders can perpetuate on their own without institution racist ideas and how these laws are going to be interpreted. Now, looking at uh, the critical race theory uh, the way it is today, uh, what do you think is the future of it, of this idea? Do you think it's going to, um, what, do you, what do you see as a future? Well, it's been around since 1970, but the problem now is the way it's being depicted by some people is this evil thing that is hurting American society and hurting children, so you cannot teach it, you cannot use it. I just don't know if we can get over this um, understanding of people, particularly now that it's become a political issue, that it's being used by uh, particular political parties to denigrate it as a problem in American society, when it's nothing more than a theoretical framework to approach and understand American society. It itself is just, as any theory is, and why I wanted to point out with Derek Bell how it is, uh, for him, something that even the spirituals and is related to religion uh, informed his ideas of critical race theory, of how people survived in society, in a segregated society and world. Thank you so much for that. I really uh, do appreciate your time and contribution. What would be your final statement here to conclude the conversation we have today about uh, critical race theory in the United States? Well, I, I think it is a shame that just a framework, theoretical framework for trying to understand disparities and what happened and why with Brown v. Board, the Civil Rights Act, and of 1964, the civil rights, the voting rights after 1965, we have so many disparities still in society, has been demonized as this horrible dividing issue in society that if people use it will make white children feel bad in school and that makes race predominant in American society. When again, it's just a scholarly tool that was originally framed by legal scholars and now has been adopted into several other disciplines. But again, it is nothing more than one approach to understanding our history and our society and can be useful. And I think that we need to take seriously whether we agree or disagree with the points that are brought up that 
despite the end of segregation, supposedly laws that say that society can be segregated, that we have not been able to make the advances we would hope we would be able to make in race relations. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate that. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for being interested in helping. As I said, I really do believe, quoting the two Adams family members, that it is only through looking at the truth, looking at those documents, looking at the evidence and understanding them, that we can counter this false narrative that's being created about American history. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead everyone for Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.